Uh, we're going to be turning our attention today to the end of John's Gospel. Uh, this is it. It's kind of hard to believe, right? It's been a long series. We've been all over the place. And as we finish, I can't help but remember where we started. Um, if it seems so long ago, back in September, uh, when we started this series uh, in John chapter 1, and talked about the the prologue, if you would, to John's entire gospel. You kicked it off, and the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. We see such powerful truths uh, that John proclaims from the very outset, like in verse 14, where he says, "...and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." We've seen throughout this whole series uh, just testimony upon testimony of Jesus' life and His ministry. We've seen Him perform signs, the the healing of uh, the, the Roman centurion's son, the changing of the water into wine, the healing of the blind man, the lame man, the feeding of the 5,000, tons of stuff that Jesus has done. We've learned a lot about what Jesus has said. There's a lot of red letters in John's Gospel, if uh, if your Bible has red letters. So many things that Jesus has taught about who He is, what He had come to do, His whole purpose, uh, who we are, and, and all of these things that He comes to, to manifest God and to reveal God to us, the Father, uh, that He has come not to uh, judge the world, but to save the world, that we must place our faith and trust in Him, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, that He has authority given to Him by the Father. So many things, so many things that we've learned and studied over the course of this series. And as we come to the end, as we come to the end, we come kind of full circle back to that beginning. Right? Because John wrote this all with one thing in mind. And here we're at the end of Jesus' life and ministry. He's gone to the cross uh, the last couple of weeks. We've talked about uh, the power of the resurrection and how that has changed uh, the course of history. And, and we're reminded that in John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, John wrote this. He said, To all who did receive Him, to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And here we stand at the end. Last week we read the, that verse in John twenty thirty one that these things are written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So a whole series that hopefully as we have worked through this, that our faith has been strengthened, uh, that we've been encouraged, challenged, we've learned new things and grown in our walk with the Lord. That based on the testimony of John, based on the testimony of the disciples, uh, based on the testimony of Jesus himself, that we would take seriously his claims. That we wouldn't write them off as things that are just familiar, but that we would let them resonate uh, with our hearts and our souls. And as we look at this final chapter, if John chapter 1 is the prologue, this final chapter in John chapter 21 you might call the epilogue. Right? Some people would argue that uh, perhaps John didn't even write this. Perhaps this was written by somebody after him that, because it would kind of make sense to wrap things up at John 20, 31. That I've written all these things so that you might believe. And then we have this whole scene with uh, Jesus uh, revealing himself again to his disciples and this conversation with Peter and with John that uh, comes at the end of this gospel. And in many ways, as we look at the epilogue, it, it gives us an overview, not like the prologue did, uh, or in giving us a recap of Jesus' life and ministry, but the epilogue gives us a preview, an overview, if you will, of what's to come after. 
what's still to come uh, in the ministry of Jesus Christ. That though He has gone to the, to the cross, that He's gone to the grave, He's risen from the dead, He's going to ascend back to the Father, as He told His disciples He's going to do, that the work still continues. That there is a mission left to be had, that this isn't the end. That His disciples have, have stuff to do, have callings ahead of them that they're needing to fulfill. That God has uh, designed and planned for each of them. And so as we look at our passage today, we see at the very beginning that starts this, that after Jesus revealed Himself, after this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And He revealed Himself in this way. And we're told that Simon Peter and some of the other disciples went out fishing. And, and some uh, scholars and commentators will lobby some accusations towards the disciples and Peter for this. They'll lobby things and saying, well, see, the fact that they're back fishing again shows that they've uh, given up their faith. That in view of all these things, they're just going back to their old way of life. And i got to be honest, I'm a little hesitant to lobby those same kind of accusations. Especially when you see uh, Peter's response to Jesus as he uh, girds himself again and jumps in the water and goes ashore. And I want to be careful not to cast judgment on these men, but we have to remember from the other Gospels that Jesus had instructed them to, to wait for a little bit until the Spirit would come. Guys got to eat, huh? So it doesn't make, it's not surprising that they would be out fishing. But as they go out fishing, don't you ever find it a little bit ironic that these guys who are professional fishermen, every time we read about them fishing, they don't catch anything on their own? Just like them before. Here they are. They're like, these are the pros. These are the guys who know where to find the fish, know how to get the fish, know how to clean the fish, sell the fish, all this stuff. And every time we see them out in the waters fishing, we're told, and they caught nothing. Until Jesus shows up and says, why don't you cast over here? And so uh, here they're out uh, in the in the water on their boats and they're fishing. We're told that uh, they've caught nothing. Jesus says to them, children, do you have any fish? We're down in verse 5 and following. And they answered him, no. If you've ever gone fishing and gotten skunked, it's a little frustrating by the time you're done. The one thing you want is to, to get a bite or to, to catch something. And so to, to stand there at the end and be like, no, we don't have anything. You, you wonder if there's not a little disappointment, a little frustration in their voice. No, we don't have anything. And he says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Now I want to just remind you guys for a second. John tells us right now that it's Jesus telling them this, but they don't recognize Jesus at this point. They don't recognize. So to them, here's some guy standing on the shore. They've been out all night fishing, catching nothing. And here's some guy on the shore saying, why don't you cast it off the right side of the boat? It's interesting as you look at these things that they, they do it. And it reminis- it's reminiscent back to like Luke chapter 5 early in Jesus' ministry. And maybe this would start taking them back there, right? Because this is how Jesus called some of his fishermen disciples. They're out in the boat. They've caught nothing. Cast into the deep waters and you'll catch something. And they catch so many fish. And here, there's another man they don't recognize standing on the shore. Cast it to the right side. And they cast their nets. And, and we're told that they, they bring in such a catch. Uh, and so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in, verse 6 tells us, because of the quantity of fish. And we're reminded here as we look at this uh, final passage in John's Gospel that, that Jesus 
Jesus reveals himself to his followers. And we have talked about Jesus revealing himself all throughout John's gospel. But you notice that that revelation of Jesus has kind of shifted throughout the time. At the beginning, it was the light coming into the darkness. And it was the darkness not understanding it, not wanting it. It was Jesus manifesting himself to a world that didn't recognize him and didn't know him and rejected him. And here at the very end, we see that Jesus is revealing himself not to those who are lost or don't know him, but Jesus is revealing himself to his own to his own disciples, the guys who believe in him as the Christ, the guys who have he's already shown himself to resurrected from the dead. And here he goes and he reveals himself again, uh, verse 1 tells us, and even down into verse 14, that he is revealing himself. And, and he has revealed himself throughout the course of his gospel as, as the truth, the way, the truth, the life. He reveals himself as uh, the one who gives us a picture of the Father, the perfect manifestation of the Father. He reveals himself uh, as the light which exposes the darkness and the wickedness of the world. Jesus reveals himself as the means of salvation for all those who would believe in him. And here he reveals himself as disciples, but they didn't recognize him at first until, until their nets were full of fish. And there's speculation out there a lot. Why didn't they recognize him? They've already seen Jesus twice risen from the dead. How could they not recognize Jesus? Well, a couple of things here. Before we get into a whole lot of uh, crazy out there ideas, let's recognize where the scene is at. We're told that they're out there right now and dawn is just breaking. They're a hundred, about a hundred yards offshore. So I want to paint that picture for you. We don't know exactly how bright it is. I might be a little dimmer. Maybe they're looking into the sun and they just see this figure of a person standing on the shore a ways off. It would make a lot of sense. They don't recognize Jesus until they see the display of his power. Cast your nuts on the right side, and they bring in this massive, massive catch. And I want to encourage us today, as Jesus' followers, that if we ought to be looking for his power at display in our lives as well. Now, let's be honest. Most of the time, if not almost all the time. It doesn't show up in miraculous displays of huge catches of fish coming on the Sea of Tiberias. But also, if we're honest, I wonder how often we sit and wait for those kinds of experiences. How's God working in your life? And we start to think and process and, and look at our life and think, man, what are the big ways that God's at work? How, what massive thing is He doing? Or we might say, He's not really doing anything right now because I'm not feeling this massive shift in my life. And we look almost sometimes for those huge and monumental changes of God's display of power in our own lives. But that's not always the fact. It's not always reality. I want to encourage you to look carefully at your life to see how God's power is at work changing you, shaping you, molding you in the mundane facets of life. The day-to-day, the, that long-term change and growth that you may not see the, the exact 180 in the moment, but if you looked back over your life for the last 30 days, can you see how God's been working? 
If you were to look back in your life over the last six months, could you see how uh, God has been shaping you and molding you, that you are a different you today because of His work in your life than you were six months ago, a year ago, ten years ago? God is at work. He reveals Himself to us in profound ways. Maybe not always miraculous, but true and powerful revelations of His work in our lives. We see Him uh, reveal Himself to us in His Word, in the fellowship and community of our church family, as we encourage and strengthen and gird up one another for love and good deeds. Uh, we're reminded that on an individual level, God is at work. Paul says uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, I am sure of this. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Are you sure of it? Are you sure that God's at work in your life today? Or will we get caught up in that, I don't see the change from yesterday to today, so God must not be doing something. I'm sure that He's working in your life. So I encourage you to look carefully ask him to show you those ways that he is at work you might recognize his power on display because paul will go on and encourage us in philippians chapter 2 to then work out your own salvation with what fear and trembling why because it is god who works in you it's god who works in you This isn't just some cultural pressure or some outside force that's just saying, hey, we just want to kind of nudge you. It is God working on who you are. Changing you, shaping you, molding you. So don't tell me, brothers and sisters, that God is not at work and that you can't see His power on display. Because if that's where you're at, I encourage you, open your eyes. Look a little closer. Dig a little deeper. I'm sure of this, that God is at work with you. So if I were to ask you today, how are you growing in your faith? What would you say? If you sat down for lunch this afternoon and had an honest conversation with the people sitting with you and you had a conversation, how am I growing? How is God stretching me and shaping me and molding me? Would you be able to give an answer? What would you say? To walk so closely with the Lord that we can see and know those little adjustments that He keeps shaved another piece off. Shaping. Molding. We see His hand at work. I'd encourage you to have that conversation. I'd encourage you to continue talking. Guys, that's why we do things like small groups. Not for the sake of just eating up a night. But to rub shoulders with other people to encourage one another, to sharpen each other, to build each other up in the faith, to strengthen our understanding of the Lord, to help us flesh out how it is that we, we work out our salvation. We bear one another's burdens. We brighten each other's days. That's what we're called to do. That's why we do these kinds of things, to, to bring us into relationship with each other. Because sometimes maybe it'll be someone else who's going to look into your life and say, man, I I am seeing God do such a work in you right now. What? Really? Oh, it's night and day. What an encouragement to know that the Lord is at work. So I encourage you with that. 
Not to try to hype up your answer if you are pondering in your own mind, your own heart right now, what, what's God doing as we try to see, you know, polish things up a little bit, maybe drop a couple fancy theological terms on it and, you know, uh, wrap it up in nice Christianese language to make it sound like this really profound change. No, dude, just be real and honest. How is, how's God working? Recognize His power at work in your life today. Number two, I want to encourage us uh, as we look at God's revelation in our lives to rely on His provision. To rely on His provision. We're told that Jesus brings in uh, to the disciples, He brings them to this great catch of fish. Uh, so much they're not able to haul it in. Verse 6, uh, we're told that uh, 153 of them, verse 11 says. Pretty outstanding to think, uh, that's a lot of fish. Uh, we had a uh, funeral service yesterday for Bree's grandpa and one of the pictures on the slideshow was of uh, grandpa and uh, my father-in-law having gone on this fishing trip and they out on the, the sidewalk in front of them so proud of their catch they had like five fish right good looking fish but in comparison 153 I don't know that it quite measures up so here these guys have this massive catch, but we're told that in this instance, in verse 11, although there were so many, the net was not torn. Although there were so many fish, the net wasn't torn, which to those men, to those fishermen, they got to be like shocked by this. Like, holy cow, how have we, we caught something like this and the nets are fine, we got it in, how is it working? Bringing to mind, man, those times perhaps were uh, back in Luke chapter 5 where their nets were breaking. And there's lots of speculation as to this. Like, like, why does John mention 153 fish? It seems like such an odd detail just to throw in there. Why would John mention that? So many people are led because of the speci- like being so specific that there must be some significance to the number 153. So there's all kinds of ideas out there as to, to what 153... Well, maybe it was there were 153 known species of fish, and so the disciples would have known that and been like, oh, this is representing the fact that, that God's bringing all people into the kingdom. I, I don't know, 153, but... Some take it back to Ezekiel chapter 47. And honestly, I really like this view of it. Because in Ezekiel chapter 47, we're told about uh, these this river that's flowing out of the new temple. And Ezekiel chapter 47 takes me back to uh, John chapter 7, where Jesus talked about uh, these waters that are, that are flowing through eternal life. And, and John gives us the commentary on it that says that he was talking about the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And so already we've seen this like tie back into Ezekiel 47. In Ezekiel 47, we're told there's this an abundance of fish that are part of it. This messianic age, this, this new temple, this, this Messiah who's going to come. There's going to be this living water and these, it's an abundance of fish. And so, it's kind of cool. I wonder if, uh, no matter how you take this whole scene, this, this catch of fish that it's a display of Jesus' power, but also, also I believe, man, that it is like a living parable for the disciples. This, these handful of guys that are there. No matter how you want to cut that cake, it tastes the same. That at the end of the day, what this does for the guys is it reveals to them that Jesus is alive, confirms it once again, it reveals to them that He has great power, great authority, and great provision. 
not just in the number of fish, but I think there's significance that the net isn't broken. Many commentators will take that statement and say it's a a picture, if you will, a symbolism that the gospel net will never break. That the fullness of all those who believe will come in and the gospel, the power of Christ, will not fail to bring in anybody. I've titled the message today, Catch and Restore. Catch and Restore. Because we've seen as we look, if you were to look back to Luke chapter 5, that early calling of these fishermen. What did Jesus tell them? I will make you fishers of men. And what a great reminder for us of the mission that we are called to, this power of the gospel to go, that we too might be fishers of men. Not trusting in our own provision, but trusting in the power and completed work of Jesus Christ. Trusting that He is capable to hold and protect all who come to Him to shepherd, to keep. That in view of such a significant event, the application would be the same for us. A sense of awe and wonder at the power and majesty of Jesus Christ. And a humble dependency on Him for all things. That we would trust Him. So, we want to look for His revelation in our lives. We we look for His power. We rely on His provision. But then, woven into this whole scene, and we see it fleshed out down through verse 15 and following, is this this picture that Jesus restores. Jesus restores. This whole thing, in some ways, if you will, is kind of a reenactment of a previous scene. Ought to take you back just a few days earlier to the night when Jesus was betrayed and stood on trial. Peter's brought into this conversation with Jesus here in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And just as a side comment, I love the the personal nature of it, like Simon, son of John. Like I picture it as me sitting there and be like, Jeremy Anderson, like just, I'm talking to you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And within this whole interaction with Peter is this, this, this total picture of the restoration of Jesus. This whole scene kind of comes full picture right then and right there. Because if you remember back to that night when Peter denied Jesus, we are told that he, he denied him for the third time when? Right before the rooster crowed. Which for those of you who have roosters or are familiar with the time, would have been early morning. Where was Peter standing when he denied Jesus? By a charcoal fire. And the only two places in John's Gospel where a charcoal fire is mentioned when Peter denies Jesus and here on the beach 
when Jesus talks to him again. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. How many times did Jesus ask him, do you love me? Three times. This picture of the restoration of Peter. Because, guys, if we're honest with ourselves, I know at least if I'm honest with myself, I feel like I could resonate with Peter. We've kind of joked and laughed a little bit as we've looked at uh, this whole gospel and seen time and time again, Peter always seems to be the one that falls up a little short, right? He denies Jesus. He cuts off Malchus's ear. He, he doesn't understand things. He's like, he's, he's that fiery go get him guy. And he just, but we're always, we've said like, what's it with Peter? And I could imagine being in Peter's shoes that you, don't you think you'd be wrestling with this? I know what I've done. I denied Jesus. I, I said I didn't even know him. How could God use me? Why would he want me? In the depths of our hearts, we've probably all asked that question or wrestled with that at some point. We know the grace and mercy of God, but that question looms. And I wonder if at times our accuser doesn't lobby that at us just a little bit brings to mind your past failures. Times you've come up short, tripped up a little bit. Oh, God wouldn't want to use you. Don't you remember what you did? The time where you said that? You felt that? Where you did that one thing that you just have a hard time forgiving yourself of? Or maybe it's that ongoing struggle that you're still you're still wrestling with. Wouldn't want to use you. But Jesus restores. And that's the beauty of the resurrection. That sin's been conquered. That in Jesus there is forgiveness of sins, so that Paul says that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus restores. It's a totally uh, a beautiful picture here, and he does so by having this in this conversation with Peter. He inquires about his affections. See, Jesus, you would think that given the, the, the history between Peter and Jesus and all that Peter's done, you would expect, it would kind of make sense for the conversation to revolve around, why'd you do it? Why'd you deny me? Why didn't you trust me? It would make sense, right? From a human perspective. But Jesus doesn't go there. And I love our Lord for that because he, he gets at the heart of the issue. Literally gets to the heart. Do you love me? And that's where Jesus goes. That's where Jesus goes. He, he deals with Peter's affections because the reality is that if we are going to follow Jesus and be faithful, it starts with our affections. It starts with our heart. So often we try to treat those symptoms and the actions and the things that are done externally and we deal with all that stuff and we never get to the heart. It's the heart. Do you love me? 
Do you love me? And Jesus asks Peter these, this question three times. And he, this is another one of those instances where where people get into the, the, the Greek and the language that was used because the first two times that Jesus asked the question, he uses the word agape. Peter, do you agape? That's love. Do you agape me? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, I phileo you, which is another Greek word for love. And so some commentators and scholars will, will differ back and forth on the, the interchange of these two different forms of love. This agape love being this very unconditional, this very uh, decision like commitment oriented, not based on something else, but I am committed wholeheartedly and unconditionally to you. That's this picture of agape. Phileo love on the flip side is more of like a, a brotherly companionship kind of love. Like, yeah, I mean, I love you. And so they, they'll look at this, and as Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And he'll say, I phileo you. So let's say, yes, I love you, but I can't bring myself to say that I agape you. Twice that goes that way. And then the third time, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Jesus says, do you phileo me? And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. Now, I don't know, you know, throughout John's gospel, these these words have kind of been used interchangeably for love, so I, I don't know if you make a big deal out of it or not, but at the end of the day, no matter which way you're going to go, if it's that Peter just can't bring himself to say, yes, I phileo you, if he doesn't feel worthy, doesn't feel like he can claim that because of the things that he's wrestling with and hanging on to, I, either way you take it. Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue. Do you love me? And that's the question you ought to ask yourself and the Lord asks you on the day-to-day of your life. Not, why did you do it? Or why didn't you do it? But do you love me? Because when our obedience and submission to Christ comes out of our love for Him, that changes the whole thing. But so often we heap the guilt and the pressure on to just try to measure up. And so then our failures or our, or our shortcomings in any way, shape, or form start to feel like a, a measuring stick that I didn't meet this standard. But Jesus asks, do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus said uh, earlier in his gospel that it is our love for him that is the significant part of that if we love Him, we will obey His commands. If we love Him, we will submit to Him. And I think Jesus gets to the heart of this because He knows that the heart is where you have to deal with the issues that lie with our wickedness and our sin. We don't treat the symptoms, we treat the heart. And so I'm reminded of in Matthew chapter 12 when Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you see and hear coming out of here is coming first from here. Uh, Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things come from within. Where's your heart? Jesus restores, but He's not after your actions. He's after your affection. Do you love me? Do you love me? 
In John's first epistle, in 1 John chapter 2, he kind of elaborates on this a little bit, and he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's about your affections. So I think Jesus' question to Peter Three times is so important. But then twice he responds and says, follow me. And as a part of this whole conversation, these three, uh, these three times that Jesus asked Peter a question, and he says, yes, I flay the Lord. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The three commands that Jesus gives. So he inquires about your affections, but then he also invites you to alter your path because Jesus, in response to those things, says, feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. So what it isn't is on the surface of just being able to say, yeah, I love you, Jesus, and then just go on. He says, okay, you love me. Let's let's course shift a little bit. He invites us to change the direction that we're going. So, yeah, I've screwed up. Peter had screwed up. He had failed numerous times, over and over and over again. And Jesus now invites him to this high calling to feed my sheep and tend my lambs. This course shift in life. And, and He invites us to the same. Perhaps not all of us call with the same calling, as we'll talk about in a moment. But all of us called to follow, called to go from pursuing our own desires and the sinfulness and the loves and passions of the world, which John tells us in First John are, are passing away. And He calls us to alter our course and follow Christ. To follow Him. To do as He has called us to do. And it starts with what do you love? Who do you love? We were reminded of that just working through um, this past week and the loss of Bree's grandpa. And uh, one of her sisters mentioned yesterday in part of her eulogy that the things that were important to him were things that weren't, weren't things that you could just buy. wasn't the truck or the tools or the yard or any of those things. Well, those were important. The, the true values in Grandpa's life were his family, his Lord. And those things can have an eternal value. And what a great reminder that sometimes going through the pain of death helps to refocus and reposition your priorities in life. Causes you to answer uh, to some of those questions. What's really important? Where do my affections really lie? The fanciness of a house? Gadgets? Galore? Or in those things that have eternal value? The people? To be fishers of men? go and share the good news. Because man, if that's my hope, I would sure love it to be your hope. I would love it to be your loved one's hope. Your neighbor's hope. Because if it's sufficient and it is good, I want the world to know it. And so Jesus invites us to alter our course. Not to go on continuing to pursue the passions of this flailing world but to pursue Him 
and his calling. Because he who does the work of the Lord endures forever. It's a total change in the focus of life. This picture, this beautiful picture that despite all the things that we've seen with Peter, as if John writing this, more than likely verse 19 shows us that this he said by what kind of death he was to glorify God. The commentators will say more than likely as almost almost certainly John's written this by the time that Peter's already been martyred. By the time pen comes to paper for this gospel, Peter's, Peter's gone to be with the Lord. Which makes a whole interesting thing. Why rip on a guy earlier so much if he's not even around? If not to show the beauty of the restoration of Christ. Say, man, my brother, he, he failed sometimes. But man, is Jesus so good to restore him. To bring him back. There was no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a beautiful picture of the power of the resurrection. This restoration of our relationship with God. That He doesn't leave us in our sin, but He meets us and brings us and saves us out of it. That He became flesh and dwelt among us. And He presents this request and a request not so much as the, well, if you feel like it kind of request, but more of a command kind of request. A request to follow. Twice, Jesus tells Peter, follow me. Once, arguably, as they're getting up and leaving the group at the beach, uh, there at the end of verse 19, and again, when Peter asks Jesus about John, what's going on, Jesus says, what does it mean to you? You follow me. Jesus requests for us to follow him. Every single one of us. Follow Him. If you have believed and you have seen and believe in who Jesus is, now the invitation stands to follow. To not stay in the same place, but you've altered your course and now you follow Jesus Christ. You follow His teachings. You follow His heart. You follow who He has called you to be. And part of those things is uh, what we see is this interaction, this, this difference between Peter and John here at the end is to fulfill your calling. To fulfill your calling. Jesus tells Peter in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And since by this time Peter's dead, John looks at it and says, when Jesus said that, he was talking about the death by which he would glorify God. Church tradition holds that Peter was crucified, but not in the same manner of Christ, because he didn't find himself worthy. Church tradition would say that Peter chose to be crucified upside down. His arms stretched. And so, I'm sure in that moment, Peter not really understanding exactly what Jesus is talking about. You used to walk where you wanted to. Someday you're not going to get to do that and your arms are going to be stretched out. And then he turns around and he sees his his friend John eavesdropping on the conversation. What about this guy? What about him? It's Jeremy's translation. And many commentators will look at it and say there's there's a good chance John was in some, or uh, Peter was in some way comparing himself with John. Man, I've come up short. Well, what about him? He seems to have stuck it out. 
He seems to not have the same kind of struggles that I have over time. And so then Jesus responds to him in verse 22, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what's that to you? You want to know the uh, layman language on that? Don't worry about him. None of your business. You follow me. What difference does it make what I have planned and what I want for him? So Jesus doesn't really get into it. As a matter of fact, because of this, there's this rumor that starts up. you got to love rumor mills, don't you? Oh yeah, John's going to live forever. The guy's never going to die. It's like, that's not exactly what Jesus said. Not exactly it. Verse 24, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Both these men would go on to be shepherds and leaders in the early church. Jesus gives Peter the commands to feed my sheep, to tend my sheep. And here, John has the unique privilege of writing out his testimony. Writing a gospel account of the Lord Jesus Christ. Different callings. Peter wasn't called to write a gospel. Peter was called to suffer. And as you look at his uh, his epistle, and especially in 1 Peter, he talks a lot about how you suffer well as a Christian. Talks a lot about it. He really gets into it. Both these men fulfilled their callings. Both these men followed the call that God had put on their life. One to write a gospel, one to die in such a way that God would be glorified. Both of them to the glory of God. Both callings important. Both callings significant, but different. And it reminds me, brothers and sisters of the church, that while we have certain callings that are the same, just in the manner of of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, I am reminded that there is a great diversity that is within the church. A diversity that is for the glory of God and the common good. The diversity that the Apostle Paul uh, speaks to in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, now there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. One Spirit, one God, but a variety of gifts. Uh, There are a variety of services, but the same Lord, a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Even in a church the size of ours, there is a variety of gifts and services and activities. There is a variety of giftings that God has given, but it is the same God who empowers each of them in each of our lives. So I encourage you, fulfill your calling. Know the gifts and passions and skill sets that God has given you and use those things unto the glory of God. To Him be the glory. To Him be the glory. Paul says that it is to each, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and has many members, all, and all the members of one body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. 
If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. All significant, all important in Christ. So I encourage you, fulfill your calling. Seek the Lord. And I know oftentimes we look at that whole idea of calling and we think of it in the macro sense, like the... I. What am I supposed to do with my life? When we're young, we try to figure that out. What, what vocation am I going to go into? What is going to be my career? I would almost argue, brothers and sisters, that there perhaps is a greater calling than your vocation. That perhaps your vocation is a place to live out that calling. Perhaps. But I encourage you to go to the Lord. And ask Him to continue to reveal on a day-to-day basis the calling that He's placed in your life. That you may have the, the resolve and the commitment to fulfill it. Because the other side of this is not just to fulfill your calling, but in doing so that you would finish the race. Peter, a man who struggled in, at times, a man of passion, a man of great love for the Lord, would be faithful to the end. That his calling was to be faithful to God in his death. And now, certainly he was called to be faithful to God in the manner in which he died, but aren't we all not called to be faithful to God even in our death? And here's the reality. That I know that death seems perhaps far off. Perhaps we don't know when death's going to be. Perhaps we have questions. Maybe some of you feel like maybe it's not as far off as others feel. But the reality is this. None of us knows the time. That's humbling. None of us knows when God may call us home. And so we live every moment of every day as if it's our last. Isn't that the great uh, responsibility that Christ gave uh, His followers? When they ask about when He's going to return, He says, what illustration does He use? The servants in the home of the Master who's away. We don't know when he's going to come back. And he says, be ready at all hours. His last thing you want to do is have him show up and you're not ready. So finish the race. And if you contemplate what it is to finish the race in the long haul, I encourage you that's the same thing that's required to finish the race today. Take it day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. Lord, I need you every hour in the songs that we sing. Amen? So live in such a way. If you want to finish your race, live this minute and the next and the next unto the glory of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Paul says this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Notice the righteousness does not come from himself. Righteousness comes from the Lord. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Finish strong, each of us. What a calling in our life that we follow Jesus. It's not for moments. It's not for seasons. It's for your life. With every breath you take, Take it unto the glory of God. As the Apostle Paul writes, do all things unto the glory of God. Whether you eat, sleep, or drink, whatever you do, 
do it all to the glory of God. So this picture, as we wrap up John's Gospel, having seen all the the wonder and the confusion and the questions of Jesus appearing and trying to make sense of who He is. Who is this man? What's He all about? And now at the end to say, follow. And you and I here today, as fruit of the early ministry of Jesus, early ministry of the apostles that has been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And by God's grace, may generations to come say the same. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. And so we've spent 44 weeks, that's what it is, 44 Sundays, we've spent in the Gospel of John. Studying all manner of Jesus' teachings, all manner of his, his ministry and the signs that he's done. And John concludes the whole thing with this. Verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. And were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's been a long series. I'll call it what it is. John's been a long series, but John tells us, man, it could be so much more. And I want to encourage you to never grow tired and never grow weary of cherishing the red letters in Scripture. Of cherishing your time spent studying the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the affection of our hearts. He is the one who's worthy of all of our praise and our worship and more. So devote yourself to following Him because those works that Jesus is doing are still being added day by day. To Him be the glory in all things. Amen? It's been a pleasure to study this gospel together. It's been a lot of time. When you figure the hours that we've spent just on Sundays and times you've spent in your small groups and in your own study, we've gone through this gospel. I'm sure if we did it again next year, we'd learn even more. Because that's the beauty of God. It's the beauty of His Word. It never returns void. And we never fully understand and know. There's always room to grow. So keep the faith to the end.